Jeremiah chapter 13, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Thus the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash. Put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me sometimes saying, take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist. And arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates. So the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it. And there was the sash, ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. I know, each week and every chapter, how many different ways will Jeremiah say it? Let me paint you a picture. Only I'm going to use words as my medium, adjectives for my color and contrast. But you're going to be able to see the numbers under the colors. In chapter 12, verse 7, there was a series that we began a look at 11 pictures. We saw, number one, a picture of a house forsaken, of a God who loved this house and his inheritance. That was the people of Israel and Judah. But because of repeated and persistent sin, God was forced to judge them. That was in chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And then we saw the picture of destructive shepherds, false shepherds, false leaders, incompetent stewards who refused to hear and from the Lord and steer the nation and guide the people in the right direction. God pictures the leaders who fleece the flock and who fed on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. And so God drew a picture of judgment where the vineyard was trampled underfoot by foreign powers in chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. And then the next picture in God's slideshow of the future included the nation of Judah's neighbors. God would judge the surrounding areas of Syria, Moab, Ammon, Egypt. Babylon, but God offered hope for those who would repent in chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. With those three pictures in chapter 13, the slideshow continues. The Lord is going to continue to paint pictures, disturbing pictures. As a matter of fact, some of you are going to be tempted to turn your head away. We're going to be shown eight slides in this chapter, pictures of Judah and Jerusalem's future. Now, we live in a world of multiple media expressions. We can watch images on our computers, on television screens, on personal de devices. I think that we're a visual people and we're visually oriented. But whether the image is an illustration, a painting, a diagram, whenever you look at an image, the image draws you in. You begin to think about what you're looking at. You begin to think about what you're looking at and what it means to you. And that's exactly what you're going to see throughout the chapter. 
Jeremiah is going to draw our attention to the fourth picture. It's the one that we just read. It's a picture of a fine linen sash or waistband. It might be something other than that, that will soon become a rotten belt in verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord is going to use the... This illustration to help Jeremiah understand how God is going to destroy the pride of his people. And next, there's going to be a picture of wine bottles. And God is going to talk about how his people have become drunks, intoxicated, oblivious to their true purpose in life in verses 12 through 14. And number six, the next picture is going to be of a person stumbling in the darkness, in the absence of light. Those who are filled with pride have no idea that they're in the dark or which direction to go. We're going to see that in uh, verses 15 through 20. The seventh picture is a familiar image of of a woman swollen from pregnancy. She is ripe. And ready to deliver. And the labor is so close that it's almost palpable. Pain will grip God's people because they rejected the living God, refused to trust him, created who created them and called them. And so the people of Judah and Jerusalem, instead of trusting the Lord, they've made the decision to trust others. Perhaps the surrounding nations looking for social, political, and military solutions to their problems. And that's in verse 21. The eighth picture is also a disturbing image. It's a woman who has been violated during a time of war. Her clothes have been ripped off. She has been violated and mistreated. And we're going to see that in verse 22. And the ninth picture is of a person with dark skin or a leopard with spots. The picture really is of a person who has a fixed character trait. And um, that just like a person who's an Ethiopian or a person or, or a leopard can't change its spots, that their judgment was fixed and it wouldn't change. And then the tenth picture is of trash blowing around in the wind because the people have become worthless to God. And then the 11th picture is of a prostitute, a woman without modesty who allows her skirt to be pulled up, exposing the shame of all who lusted and committed immorality, sexual and spiritual adultery. So the pictures are going to be graphic. They're going to be disturbing. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself a visual learner? Are you one of those people who you need a picture in order to understand what it is that you need to know? Well, this is interesting because that's exactly what Jeremiah will do. But he does it through words. And you have to understand something about the Hebrew people. The ancient people of of Israel believed that there was almost a, a supernatural or a mystical connection between the spoken word of the Lord and the thing that was spoken. But it goes to the heart of what Isaiah said in chapter 55, verse 11. Many of you are familiar with it. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, God's Word will do exactly what God intends it to do. And so Jeremiah, like Jesus in the New Testament, will speak in parables. Look at verse 1. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. Now, some scholars believe that the parable may have been told after a very famous battle. It was called the Battle of Carchemish, which took place in 605 B.C. Basically, the Battle of Carchemish was between the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire, and they were fighting this battle in the area of the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Judah. In other words, the land became the battleground. 
And it's at this time when King Jehoiakim basically turns to Nebuchadnezzar as a warning that the alliance with Babylon would cost Judea and Jerusalem. In other words, freaked out and fearful for their very existence, the king was wondering whether or not it would be a good idea to form an alliance with Nebuchadnezzar in order to save the country. And so... It could very well be that part of what's happening here is a parable is given to demonstrate what a stupid idea that is. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, buy a sash or waistband or loincloth. It says, wear it, but don't wash it. Now, there seems to be some controversy about the Hebrew word translated sash. In the King James, it's translated exactly that way, a linen sash or a belt. But the Hebrew language gives strong indications that it might be a word that you and I would probably use to describe a loincloth. If that's the case, it would have been a kind of a skirt wrapped around the hips. And it would have reached halfway down to the knees. The waist here, go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist. Actually, the Hebrew word here isn't waist. When we think of waist, we think of that area that's just a little bit south of our belly button and to the left and the right of our hips. This is your waist. But that's not the word in the language. It's loins. And if you're wondering where your loins are, it's south of your belly button And if you come to the end of the southern region and you can't go any further, those are your loins. And if that's the case, it's kind of an ancient representation of a diaper, if you will. It's a skirt. And if you're wondering if prophets wore skirts, well, Jeremiah did. So what is this? Whether it's a sash, a belt, a skirt, what does it symbolize? Does it represent the people's pride? Does it represent God's coming judgment? Is it possible that whatever this cloth is, it's combining both of those thoughts, that a coming judgment is going to take place, but that judgment is going to also include the judgment on the people's pride? And so in verse 2, it says, So I got a sash, according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. Read loins. In verse 3, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist or loins, arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. The word for river is the Hebrew word perat. Usually in the Old Testament, when it has the definite article in it, the river It almost invariably refers to the Euphrates River. Some people suggest that it might be a local stream, the Wadi Farah, which would have been about four miles from Anathoth, which was Jeremiah's home. It may be the Euphrates River, which is 350 miles away. Now, the Lord instructs Jeremiah to go there twice. And if it is, in fact, the Euphrates River, those of you who have ever traveled 350 miles, if you go 350 miles one direction and 350 miles back, how far have you traveled? Those of you who are good in math, what is the answer? 700 miles. Now, we're going to see later on in the text that he makes this trip twice. So if he makes the trip twice, 700 plus 700 is... Would God make you go 1,400 miles just to learn a lesson? It is possible. Let me tell you one of the reasons why I really think that it really is the Euphrates River. One of the reasons why I think that it's the Euphrates River is because the children of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem, are going to be taken to the streams of the river and they're going to be held in Babylon captive. 
I'm also going to suggest to you that later on in the book of Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar seems to deal very favorably with Jeremiah. And it's possible that during Jehoiakim's reign, Jeremiah literally took this journey, that he lived out this particular parable. Now, if that's the case, and the New American Commentary finds no valid reason why Jeremiah couldn't have made the journey to Babylon and the Euphrates River, I'm going to suggest to you that there's the strongest of possibilities that that's exactly what happened. Because it becomes a type and a picture of a Jew going to the banks and he's hiding this belt or this sash in the dirt. And so whatever the case, Jeremiah takes the sash, hides it down by the river. Look at verse 5. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And then in verse 6 it says, Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates. And take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. And in verse 7 it says, Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I hidden it. And there was the sash, ruined. It was profitable for nothing, or good for nothing. And then in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah. And the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my word, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. I want you to look carefully at the three reasons that God gives for executing judgment. Number one. The people have rejected God's word. Number two, they have followed their own evil desires and passions. And number three, they've worshipped idols. And so what was the result or the consequences of the people's rejection and rebellion? The people destroyed their ability to be useful to God. And by the way, that's exactly what rejection and rebellion and a failure to trust God will do. It will result in your inability to be used by God. Oh, it's possible that you could be used on a superficial level. Oh, it's possible that you could be used because of the world in which we live in. But in order for you to be used at the level that God wants you to be used, it's going to require submission. And obedience, that becomes part of the point. They had given their hearts to false idols. And so the idea is what possible value can they be to the Lord? They had basically ruined their lives, ruined their fellowship, ruined their intimacy with God. And in verse 11, it says, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, for glory, but they wouldn't hear it. And so here's the idea. Just as the belt is wrapped around the man, so the people of Israel were wrapped around the Lord. Now, I also want you to think of something else. If it is, in fact, the Euphrates River, how long do you think it took Jeremiah to walk on foot 350 miles? Let me give you an idea. It would be like leaving our parking lot, walking to I-25, go past Colorado Springs, go past Pueblo, go past Raton Pass, keep going past, uh, what's the next town? Las Vegas. And then finally you wind up in Santa Fe. So it would be like walking from here to Santa Fe. And if you had to walk from here to Santa Fe, how long do you think it would take? I think it might take two weeks. But guess what? When Ezra and the children of Israel left Babylon and returned back to Jerusalem, the entourage took eight months. It 
would take a long time. If it's taking months instead of weeks, can you imagine? He walks all the way there. And if it took six months to walk there and six months to walk back, that's a year. Then he waits for who knows how long, and the Lord says, I want you to go back. He goes back. It takes another six months to walk there. He digs up the dirty underwear and decides, I can't put this on. This is no longer useful. That becomes part of the point. Do you live a righteous life? How do you suppose we are going to be able to overcome temptation and tests? It's by living in Jesus. It's by living in Christ. We cannot live a a righteous life apart from the Lord. In the presence of Jesus, we have victory and trials and tests. And so the Lord explains the symbolism to Jeremiah and to us. The Lord was going to do with his people just what Jeremiah would do with the sash. God would exile the people to Babylon. Again, a type and a picture of what it means to live in a world apart from God. In Babylon, the people would bury their pride, their sinful pride, until it was rotten and useless. Because remember what the people were thinking. The people were thinking, we're God's people. We're God's elect. We're God's choice people. We're God's chosen people. God can't let anything bad happen to us and then something bad really does happen to them they're displaced and their temple is destroyed but they were so filled with pride and they were so filled with arrogance and they were so filled with religiosity and they were so filled with this idea that they could go anywhere do anything and worship whatever they wanted and by the way if Babylon cured them of anything at all it was idolatry And if you have to be in a place of brokenness and humility, if you have to be in a place where you have nothing left to depend upon, you have no resources, you have no nothing in your past and nothing in your present. The people had ignored the Lord. They had neglected the Lord. They had rejected God's commands. They'd refused to obey him. And because of their terrible sins. God was forced to execute judgment on their sinful pride and their self-exaltation. I don't think you need to be a Bible scholar to figure out what is your reading of the scriptures when it comes to pride. If you were to, in a single sentence, describe how God feels about pride, what would you say? It's okay. Yeah, hates it. Hatred is the, is the word that comes to mind. God hates pride. There are repeated warnings in the scripture. We're told not to be arrogant. We're told to be careful not to look down on others. We're told to be careful not to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. In Proverbs 11:2, we read, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Remember what the Bible teaches. The way up is the way down. And the way down is the way up. It's exactly the opposite of what the world teaches. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Someone once said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone in the room sick, except for the person who has it. Isaac Ambrose said, remember that pride leads to hell, but humility leads to heaven. God always beats down the proud and lifts up the humble. Do you feel beaten down? Have you ever stopped to ask the question, why? Why do I feel so beaten down? Is it possible that God is still at work? Has your pride been a little bit more resistant to change than even you would like? And then 
He moves from this picture to the next picture. It's the picture of the wine bottles and intoxication. Look at verses 12 and 13 and 14. Therefore, you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, and even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not have pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but I will destroy them. Look again. Verse 12. Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. Do you understand what you're reading? Jeremiah is told, hey... Do you know what wineskins are for? To be filled with wine. Do you think we're stupid, Jeremiah? Do you think we're idiots? Everybody knows, everybody in the world knows that wineskins are for wine. It would be like if you took a can of Coors and you go, you know what this Coors can is for? It's to be filled with beer. Do you think we're stupid? Of course that's what it's for. But look what Jeremiah is reminding them. He says, every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say, yes. Verse 13, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. The purpose of wineskin is to hold and preserve wine. People knew Jeremiah knew that the people would mock his statement. But remember what the prophet's job is to do. It's to tell them what the Lord is saying to them. And what is the Lord saying to them? Just like the purpose of a wineskin is to be filled with wine, what's your purpose? What's your reason for existence? Why do people exist? The people weren't intoxicated over joy, over God's beauty and God's holiness. They weren't enraptured. They weren't intoxicated when it came to worshiping and loving and serving and obeying the Lord. The people were missing the point. The people had ignored and neglected the very reason why they existed. They didn't exist to get drunk. They didn't get they didn't exist in order to please themselves. And so God was going to make them drunk with his wrath and God's judgment would be fair, impartial, without respect to the young, the old, male, female, kings, priests, prophets. Everyone would be judged. In the New Testament, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Drunks miss the whole point. If you've ever known anyone who was a drunk, if you've ever known anyone who drank every single day, day after day, day after day, and you ask them, what's the purpose of living? What is the purpose of living if you're a drunk? It's to find alcohol, drink alcohol, consume that alcohol, and then find another way to drink it and consume it and to do it over and over and over again. But they miss the whole point. Being drunk and being intoxicated isn't the reason why you exist. The reason why we exist is to know God, to be known by God, to enter into fellowship and relationship, a loving, believing, respectful relationship with God so that you could be consumed and intoxicated, not with his, not with with passions and 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 getting high. Now, I want you to just ask, answer this question real quick. Do drunks have hope of eternal life? Pretty easy question. Do drunks have hope of eternal life? No. 
not apart from Christ. In other words, I'll read it to you. This is Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. But take heed to yourselves or warning, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, that's partying, drunkenness, that you know what that is, the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. The Bible says that drunks don't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. The skeptic and atheist Bertrand Russell, who wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, said drunkenness is a kind of temporary suicide. The happiness that it brings is merely negative. It's a momentary secession of unhappiness. Those people who are willing to be honest, whether they're addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever their drug of choice, there's a reason why they want the unhappiness to go away. They want the pain to go away. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That the pain will never go away until you come to grips with your reason for being alive. You don't exist for any other reason other than to know God and to be known by God, to love him. And so he paints this picture of a group of people who have lost the whole meaning of life and the whole purpose of life. And then Jeremiah paints yet another picture of a man stumbling in the dark, blinded by the circumstances. In verse 15, it says, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud. For the Lord has spoken. But the people were proud. The people were proud and they were arrogant and they were self-sufficient and the people felt that they were entirely ready, willing, able to handle their own life. But the Lord warned them, don't be proud, be humble, be willing to listen to what I have to say, repent of your arrogance and your pride. And so escape is being offered. They have to glorify God in verses 16 and 17 and giving glory to God means means honoring him, confessing their sin. Honoring God means to confess your sin and to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord for salvation. And so in verse 16, look what it says. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you're looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and he makes it a dense darkness. Here's the picture. The picture that, well, before I get to the picture, Jeremiah is going to give three reasons why the people needed to honor the Lord. The first reason, judgment is not far off. Judgment was just right down the road. The picture, here's the picture. The picture is of a man traveling down a road. But it's not just any road. It's a dangerous mountain road. So here's the picture. Here's a traveler. He's walking up a mountain. It's a steep mountain. It's a dangerous mountain. You barely can cling to the side of the mountain. And all of a sudden night falls. And you find yourself on a steep, dark mountain road. And you have no light. And you have no access to the light. And every step you take could result in disaster. Now, the second reason, the people needed to honor God because the hope of light would be soon turned into a thick darkness and gloom. That's what it says in verse 16. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it a dense darkness. I, you need to understand something. The people were hoping for light. They were hoping for deliverance from the threatening danger of the Babylonian armies who were about to sweep over them and take over the nation. But the Lord warns them, unless they repented, their hope for light would be dashed. It would be too late to avoid the oncoming blackness and devastation. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. He says, work while it's still day because the night is coming. When no one can work. 
And so Jeremiah is trying to paint a picture. As he's painting a picture, he's trying to paint a picture of what's about to happen. But the Lord warned them. Unless they repented, their hope for light would be dashed. It would be too late to avoid the oncoming blackness and devastation. What if you, through some miracle, came to discover that you were going to lose your eyesight? That after a day or a week or a month or a year, that your eyes would no longer be able to see. And you absolutely understood that darkness was going to be a part of your future. Hopefully, if you have enough sense, you would begin to make preparation that there's going to be a particular part of your life that you're used to having that you're no longer going to have. By the way, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 10, it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Is that your attitude? (laughs) Cat Stevens used to sing a song. And if my colors all run dry... I I won't have to work. He talks about that if he doesn't have his eyes, if he doesn't have his hands, if he doesn't have his legs, he's going to have to figure out a way still to survive. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live to love and serve thee is my share. And this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. Baxter says, hey, if, if, if it happens that I get to live a long time. It just means that I'll get to serve the Lord. He says that I may long obey if short, yet why should I be sad to soar to endless day? Oh, you mean my life isn't going to last very long? Good for me. I get to go to heaven. Richard Baxter writes, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that unto God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Come, Lord, when grace had made me meet thy blessed face to see. Or if thy work on earth be sweet, what will thy glory be? Then shall I end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints to sing Jehovah's praise. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. The Puritan is basically saying, I don't know everything. And I don't know what the future holds. But this is what I know. That God holds the future. I know that I am willing to have whatever God wants me to have. And I'm willing to do without whatever God doesn't want me to have. In verse 17, Jeremiah writes, but if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. That's the third reason the people were in danger. Failure to repent and return would result in captivity. One Bible teacher writes, quote, Note Jeremiah's love and tenderness for the people despite their terrible sins. In the day of their judgment, he would be gripped with deep sorrow and weep bitterly because the Lord's flock was being taken captive and exiled to a foreign nation, unquote. But he does. He loves them and his tenderness for them. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. Do you understand what he's saying? I'm going to continue to give you the message. But what if your pride prevents you from hearing the message? Jeremiah says, I'm going to continue to to tell you the message. But I'm too proud to turn from my sin 
I'm too proud to accept Christ. I'm too proud to give up my self-sufficiency. And Jeremiah says, then I'll weep for you. I'll cry bitterly for you. Even if you won't cry for yourself. Because God has given me a vision of what life is like for people who resist and reject and ignore what God has. And in verse 18, Jeremiah writes, say to, the Lord says to Jeremiah, say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what Jeremiah is being asked to do? Jeremiah is being asked by God to warn the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem about the threat. Say to the king and say to the queen, guess what? You're not going to have a country for very long. Your country is going to disappear. The capital is going to be destroyed. Some of the people are going to make a run for it. Some of the people are going to die. The rest of the people are going to be taken captive. Don't you understand what's about to take place? Imagine you're having a conversation with a person who is in unrepentant adultery. And you say, don't you understand that this is going to destroy your marriage? Don't you understand your wife is going to leave you? Don't you understand that your children are going to despise you? Don't you understand what's about to happen? Imagine you're talking to a person who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, and you say, don't you understand that your life is about to come to an end? Don't you understand that your family is about to be destroyed? Imagine that you're called to have a conversation, and that's exactly what Jeremiah is being asked to do. He's asked to warn the leadership. The leaders would be humbled by God. They would be removed from power. They would have no nation. In verse 19, it says, the cities of the south shall be shut up and no one shall open them. Well, who's going to be in charge of the southern region? No one, because there is no southern region. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Is there any hope? No, there's no hope. There's not going to be a nation and there's not going to be a government and there's not going to be anyone here. In verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, what will it take for you to open up your eyes and see the threat? And what will it take to open your eyes? And see the threat. What will it take for you to open your heart and open your eyes and remind yourself that if ever there was a time to have a right relationship with God, it's now. Where's the flock that was given to you? Where are your beautiful sheep? The answer? The flock is gone. Some have fled. Some have died. The rest have been taken captive. How many pictures do I have to paint? Oh, I'll paint you another picture. In verse 21, a picture of a woman in labor. What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? Here's the picture that he's painting. Of a pregnant woman. A woman who is swollen in her pregnancy. What will the people say when the judgment comes? The picture that Jeremiah paints. I want you to imagine a woman who's just about ready to give birth. And guess what most women experience when they're getting ready to get, have a baby? Bill Cosby made it famous. It's called pain. Pain. Bill Cosby used to say, okay, gentlemen, 
How much pain? Take your lower lip and then stretch it as far as you can possibly stretch it until it covers the top of your head. And then you begin to understand the concept of pain. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Pain grips God's people. Imagine a woman pregnant who for whatever reason says, I'm not really pregnant. I'm not having a baby. And her belly begins to swell. And then the baby finally comes. Pain, according to Jeremiah, is going to grip God's people. And why is pain going to grip God's people? Because they distrust God. They don't trust the Lord. You don't know how many people have said to me, I have trust issues. You don't understand. I have trust issues. Tell me again. I don't trust God. Really? Who do you trust? Well, really, if you want to be technical, I don't trust anyone. But it's typically not true. They'll typically trust someone. They'll trust themselves. They'll trust their fear. They'll trust their pain. They'll trust their ignorance. They'll trust their neighbor. They'll, they'll trust their family. They'll trust their government. They'll trust, trust, trust others. But they won't trust God. Think about it for a moment. Think about the next time you or you hear someone say, I don't know that I trust God. Well, who do you trust? What do you trust? Your feelings? Your circumstances? Your pain? You have to understand something, that the politics of Judah were very interesting. They had made alliances with the north against the south. Then they made alliances with the south against the north. The people and the leaders were willing to trust anyone other than God. And so it is, even in our own day. People will trust Buddha. They'll trust Hare Krishna. They'll trust Muhammad. They'll trust this. They'll trust that. They'll trust everyone. They'll trust no one. But the moment you suggest to them, hey, how about trusting God? And how about trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? That's nonsense. Are you kidding? What kind of nonsense are you talking about? The people refused to trust in the power of God and they refused to trust in the goodness of God. They refused to trust in the grace of God, the mercy of God. Instead, they placed their trust in the powers of the north and the powers of the south. The people didn't place their trust in God to deliver them from their enemies and the threats. The irony, the people of Judah and Jerusalem would be defeated by the same entities that they had placed their trust in. Do you understand that statement? They decided that they wouldn't trust God, but they would trust God's enemies. And if you make the decision not to trust God, then you will trust the flesh and it will enslave you. If you trust your pride, it will crush you. If you trust the enemy of your soul, the New Testament says that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Trust the world. Trust the devil. Trust the flesh. It will crush you. It will enslave you. It will devour you. Jeremiah's warning don't trust this world. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 24, it says, And the disciples were astonished at Jesus' words. But Jesus answered and said, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? But remember, it was prefaced by a statement that it's easier to enter for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come into heaven. And they, they were astonished. The picture? 
The next picture is a woman who's been violated and humiliated. You might want to turn away. Look what it says in verse 22. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? The answer, for the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. This is a dreadful and disturbing picture. It's a picture of a woman who's been raped. As you can imagine, in the midst of such agony and terror and horror, it's pretty usual for a person to say, why are all these things happening to me? The picture is a, a woman. She's a victim of war. She's been stripped and mistreated. The self-righteous and the arrogant would be stripped and, and mistreated. The self-righteous, by the way, have a, a disturbing theology. They believe that they can make themselves acceptable to God. Why are these things happening to me? They think that God will never reject them. They think that they might be bad in the sense of an indiscretion or a mistake, but that God would never reject them because they're not really that bad. And they're better than most, but God won't reject them. They feel secure. They feel confident. They feel that life should be fair and they themselves will have their needs met but God warns the self-righteous, the smug, the proud the arrogant that due to their sins they would be like a woman who's raped, her clothes are ripped off she's abused, mistreated, exposed you might even ask the question I don't understand this image and this is part of the point that is being made even by Jeremiah, because more people are offended by the picture than the point of the picture. And the point of the picture is this picture is Jerusalem. It's the city itself. The young daughter, the virgin daughter. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 2 where he says, Therefore you're without excuse, O man, whoever you are that judges. For even in your judgment you condemn yourself. For you that judge the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them who commit such things. And so here is the picture. God says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You're guilty, guilty. G-U-I-L-T-Y. Guilty of spiritual immorality. And sexual immorality. But you haven't taken it seriously. You really don't believe the truth when it says there's none righteous. No, not one. Everyone has sinned. All have come and come short of the glory of God. If any of us are going to make it, there's going to be, have to be a provision for our sin. And so this is part of the picture. It's a horrific picture of a consequence too hard to bear. And then there's the picture of a person with dark skin or a spotted leopard. It's a fixed judgment. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. By the way, if you're wondering if this is some sort of racial slur, you would be mistaken. It's not talking about the inferiority or the superiority based on the color of skin. What he's talking about is a person who's in a situation where he can't change the color of his skin. As a matter of fact, later on in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah finds himself in a deep, dark pit, you know who comes to save Jeremiah? It's an Ethiopian. Can a person change the color of his skin? Well, let's ask Michael Jackson. Well, with enough time and enough money, I guess you can. But in Jeremiah's day, they didn't have all of the sophisticated treatments. Can a leopard change spots? Well, no. And see, this is the risk that sinners take. 
Sin is so ingrained. It's so entrenched. It's so embedded. Sin is permanent and sin is fixed. And sin is so deeply entrenched by a person or a cult or a city or a nation that they become enslaved and snared and consumed by their lust. Sin becomes their master. Some of you have known people who have been enslaved by their appetites, by drugs or alcohol or whatever their drug of choice is. It is entrenched. They can't imagine their life apart from this master who dictates the course of their life. Fear, bondage, self-destruction. And for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, nothing would change their minds. God gives a message. Please turn from your sin and, and get help. No. And you need to get help. I don't want help. Don't you understand that that's destroying your life? I don't care. This verse is well known and oft quoted. But the verse isn't denying the possibility of repentance but pessimistically recognizing that those who are accustomed to do evil find it hard to repent and they find it hard to do what's right. You may know somebody like that. You may even be somebody like that. That you're so used to doing what's wrong and you're so used to doing what's wicked and you're so used to doing what's selfish, that you can't even imagine what it would be like. But this is the whole point of the gospel. That's why Jesus comes into our heart and into our life. The Bible gives us this great hope that Jesus can change us from the inside out. And then look at the picture of trash blowing in the wind in verse 24. Therefore, I will scatter them like stubble. That passes away by the wind of the wilderness. You know what the picture is? The Jeremiah's painting? He's putting you out into the deserts of the Middle East. And he's asking you to watch as a piece of trash blows by. Hey, by the way, how many of you chase trash that blows by? You see the outward part of a, of a straw. You see a piece of trash, you see a piece of tumbleweed, you see a cigarette butt, you see something blowing in the wind. How many people do you know who chase trash blowing in the wind? You know why you don't chase trash blowing in the wind? Because it doesn't have any value. You don't miss it. That's what Jeremiah's Hearing from the Lord, therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. In verse 25, it says, this is your lot. The portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me. And trusted in falsehood. Why are we getting such harsh treatment? The Lord gives two reasons. They've forgotten the Lord and they've trusted idols. The people of Judah and Jerusalem have become valueless. Their useless waste fit only to be driven into the wilderness by the desert winds. And so the Lord is issuing a warning about the dangers of forgetting God and, and refusing to trust God. It's interesting, way before Bob Dylan said, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. What do you see blowing in the wind and what's blowing on by? If we are cut off from the Lord, why doesn't God do something supernatural? Why? Why not paint a picture of judgment? Why not spell out the consequences? And that's exactly what Jeremiah is doing. I want you just for a moment, just for one split moment. Think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Just picture it in your mind right now. The worst, the absolute worst. Maybe it was a disease. Maybe it was a car accident. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Who knows what it is? Think about the worst thing that's ever happened. And someone said, I'm going to give you a heads up and a warning. It doesn't have to happen that way. Would you want the heads up? Would you want the warning? And Jeremiah is saying, 
What can I do to cause you to awaken to the consequences of rebellion and and resisting God? He's warning us about embracing false gods, false theologies, false philosophies. Human beings are precious and valuable and eternal. If you read this passage and you somehow come to the conclusion that human beings are something less than valuable and eternal, you would be missing part of the point because that's the whole reason why Jesus lives and dies on a cross and rises from the dead. It's because you will live somewhere. And look at verses 26 and 27. It's the picture of a prostitute. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face. That your shame may appear. The picture. A prostitute. Jerusalem has become a harlot. A harlot who is willing to expose herself to anyone who's willing to pay the price. The picture. Of a woman who has lost all sense of modesty And all sense of decency. She has done this so often. That there's no sense of shame. And there's no sense. Of guilt. And in verse 27 it says. I've seen your adulteries and your lustful kneeings. The lewdness of your harlotry. Your abominations on the hills and the fields. Why? Because this is where the spiritual abominations took place. On the hill and in the field. He says, woe to you Jerusalem. Will you still not be made clean? The word clean is from the root word. Pahev. It means to shine. Or to be made bright. And the word was often used in in the Hebrew Old Testament to contrast physical wellness with horrible diseases like leprosy or Levitical cleanliness or moral cleanness. It was a word that would describe what it meant to be clean on the inside. Not just where you wash the outside, but the guilt and the shame. Gets washed on the inside. So what are the adulteries that God is making reference to? This is the sensual, the sexual, the spiritual liaisons that the people of Judah and Jerusalem have entered into. This is a dramatic and shocking picture of those who have turned away from their spouses to commit adultery. And in God's mind and heart, worshiping idols and false gods is exactly that. It's an act of adultery. And the people in Jeremiah's day, just like in our day, they were steeped in the sensual, in the sexual, in spiritual depravity. Look what the text says in verse 27. I have seen your adulteries. Do you understand what the text is saying? I didn't ignore it. I didn't pretend like it didn't happen. And for the person who's thinking, well, God will ignore it. I mean, yes, I've done bad things, but not all that bad. I mean, God will ignore it. He will overlook it. He'll pretend like it didn't really happen. But the Lord saw their wickedness and he saw their perverted acts of false worship of the fertility gods. And then comes doom. Then comes judgment. Why? Immoral lives, false worship, refusal, refusal, refusal to repent and return. You might be thinking after hearing so much from Jeremiah, well, is there any hope for me? The answer, yeah. There's huge hope. This is why the New Testament says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not only does God want you to have a heart willing to turn from your sin, but he wants you to have a heart that's willing to turn to him, to love him, to embrace him, to walk with him. And he'll empower you to be the man or the woman you've always wanted to be and that he created you to be 
you were created in Christ Jesus to be known by him and to be loved by him. I did the whole chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you've painted a picture. And the picture's pretty disturbing. You've given us a slideshow. Repeated pictures. Pictures that are hard to sometimes see, to look at. But Lord, we know that the way of the transgressor is hard. Lord, we know that that we were never intended to live that kind of a life. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person, Lord, that we would come to a place where we would voluntarily humble ourselves. Just like the New Testament says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Lord, we pray that we won't have to go through the excruciating process of having you destroy our pride. Lord, we pray that we would just give it up voluntarily and replace it with humility. And so again, Father, we pray that you would give us light so that we wouldn't be blind. That you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of what it means to know you and to love you and to be faithful to you, to walk with you. And Lord, again, we thank you for Jesus, for his love, for his mercy, for his grace. That, Lord, we've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've been chosen, adopted, accepted in the beloved. And again, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.